and welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the mod- expressive modernity of contemporary cinema. I'm your host, Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick. In person. In person. So not as always per se, but yes, now we are finally in real life. Yeah. Yeah, it's an, it's an IRL podcast. IRL for podcast us. for the first time <laughs> since the beginning of time. Yes. So, yeah, this is a bit weird, but I'm sure we'll manage. So, today is our second noir episode, bonus episode. Um, so, I will start by asking Nick what has been watching this week. So, yesterday I, um, I finally got around to watching Eternals, the new Marvel movie. Um, yeah, I, I was a bit kind of apprehensive because a lot of the word of mouth over the last week or so has been mixed, to say the least. It, it, the, I don't ever listen to Rotten Tomatoes, but it currently has like a 54% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is... Not very good. N- no, I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of people saying it's the worst Marvel movie and all this kind of crap and I, I'm just kind of thinking oh god is it really going to be that bad i got to say I was really curious because this is not only it's, it's a new it's a new um, characters coming into the MCU but you're also getting best director winner Chloe Zhao directing um, I really really like her first two movies um, the songs my brother taught me and the Rider from 2017. I was kind of, I'm a bit mixed on Nomadland. Um, I, th- I think it's, it is very, very good in parts and then other parts I kind of switched off. But the stuff that Chloe Zhao is really, really good at, um, that she, she kind of excels with, um, is the on-location photography. Um, in The Rider, it is truly astonishing. Um, in uh, Nomadland, um, yeah. it, the, the, way, the way she shoots landscapes, um, landscape, really, it's, really good, yeah. it's astonishing, yeah. So it's kind of like thinking, okay, what's going to happen here? I mean, Marvel has been shooting on a green screen and kind of posting in landscapes afterwards kind of thing. They don't really do location shooting. And there was a th- quote that came a few months ago where Kevin Feige looked at the dailies and was like really surprised about how good it looked when she looked shot on location, which so everything was done without CGI. You mean? And um, obviously there are CGI elements and stuff like um, like enhancements with you know putting in the space, big spaceship and all the you know the fact that Richard Madden is 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 flying. Mm. Um, obviously that kind of stuff. But I mean the the location photography you can tell that they shot in London, for example, like actually they're, you know, they're shooting in uh, Camden, Brixton area, I think it is. And it looks like it is on location. It doesn't look like it's substituted in anything for anything else. Um, There's a sequence takes place in Iraq. um, And uh, because there's quite a lot of flashback sequences going back, because these are super hit, these are, characters that have been around for thousands of years in the MCU so they do a lot of flashbacks to do with different points in history and everything is look I mean the way she kind of shoots things it, it, it the landscapes it's just it's incredible and I gotta say I think she's had the most freedom 
to put her directorial stamp on a film. Apart from probably James Gunn, I think she's probably the only one that's been able to be like, this is how I'm going to do it mm. in the Marvel machine. Um, for example, like Angelina Jolie, I mean, is she shot like Angelina Jolie as a movie star? And it's not like the usual Marvel thing where they have a big name star and it's just kind of like they're there. No, you know for well that that's Angelina Jolie. It's framed and shot like it's Angelina Jolie. The story itself, um, it's weird space cosmic Marvel shit that is just totally my jam. Um, okay. Uh, I I came out of the cinema and I was like, this is the MCU's Jupiter Ascending. Um, Jupiter Ascending being the Wachowskis space opera um, movie starring Mila Kunis and Channing Tatum as a dogman um, with <laughs> uh, Oscar winner um, uh, Eddie Redmayne giving the, perhaps the worst performance you're ever going to see Eddie Redmayne give, which is really funny because the same year he won the Oscar for Danish Girl, um, he... Well, I thought he was... He won it for Theory of Everything. Oh, Theory of Everything. He was, no, was he in The Danish Girl? He was in The Danish Girl, but yeah. I don't think he won the Oscar. No, no, no. It was, one, it was one of the two. It was the, the same year that Theory of Everything came out. He was also in Jupiter Ascending. And he won the Oscar for Theory of Everything, but in Jupiter Ascending, he gives perhaps the worst performance you're ever going to see any actor give. Like, he he makes a choice in his performance, and he go he sticks with it, and it's incredible, and it's terrible, and it's amazing. <laughs> I really recommend uh, Jupiter Ascending. There's a whole thing with um, Scene Bean and Bees. Um, like I said, Channing Tatum is a dog man. Um, You're not selling it. No. <laughs> no. I mean, I, it, it, it's weird. So the thing, my, my point is, it's weird, and I really like Jupiter Ascending because it, it just goes weird, and it doesn't care what anybody else thinks. And Eternals does that. And I think that's kind of what is happening with the general reception is that people are expecting the normal standard Marvel formula movie like Shang-Chi or Black Widow to the late, the late, you know. Mm -hmm. But this isn't that. It's two hours and 45 minutes. It spans several thousand years with the characters. There, there are 10 main characters pretty much. And it's shot by Best Picture Director and kind of looks like that in places. So yeah, um, Eternals is my, I, I, I recommend it, I recommend going and seeing it because it's different um, than the usual Marvel stuff. I mean, we're going to get the usual Marvel stuff in a, in a few few weeks anyway with the new Spider-Man movie, um, which I'm, I'm booking the day off work so I can watch it repeatedly in the cinema. <laughs> um, and yeah that's kind of it oh yeah and I've been working my way through Big Mouth season 5 on Netflix uh, that tells me nothing so um, yeah Big Mouth is like a Netflix animated show done by uh, Nick Kroll and uh, Andrew Goldberg um, voices uh, John Mulaney, Jason Manzukish, Nick Kroll Paul Shear, Mayor Rudolph um, and they voice uh, basically Preteens into teenagers. It's all about going through puberty, and they got hormone monsters and hate worms and shame wizard. The shame wizard is voiced by uh, David Thewlis. I love David Thewlis. Um, We're so going to talk about him later on in yeah. the podcast. So if you want to, if you want to hear David Thewlis voice a, a, a shame wizard, hmm. um, it's it's pretty good. I mean, the Big Mouth is very very good. Um, it's 
well worthy of, of your time if you're looking for something that is I actually read somewhere, funny. I think it was on Twitter, that uh, somehow they wanted Robin Williams to play Lupin. Not the other In thing. Harry Potter? In Harry Potter. Huh. I heard... Um, I know there was a clause that only British actors could play the wizards in Harry Potter, but somehow they wanted Robin Williams. It was never going to happen. There was one I heard, the reason why Tilda Swinton isn't in the Harry Potter movies, apparently she was offered a part and she turned it down because she was against public schools or private school system and stuff. So oh, that's why she turned it down. Interesting. Um, she doesn't like private schools, so that's why she turned down Harry Potter. So that's why you don't see Tilda Swinton in there. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Anything um, else? I know. I think I think that's kind of it. Um, what, what have you been What have you been watching since we last? So because it's November, I wanted to catch up on some films that are classics which I had not seen. So I watched Murder My Sweet, nineteen forty four, with um, Dick Powell, directed by Edward Dimitrik. Um Dick Powell, we've had him on the podcast. I think when we did Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty three. And he's a song and dance man in the 30s. So in the 40s, he wanted to change that because he was he was a matinee idol, idol that he was getting a bit older. And he managed to uh, land this um, job as playing Philip Marlowe. Oh. Yes. So it's, it's based on a um, Raymond Chandler novel. And it's very good. It's it, Murder My Sweet, 1944. It's really, really good. You see Dick Powell in a different light, literally in a different light, because it's noir. Uh, and you see him actually do a very good job of, of being Philip Marlowe. Some friends of mine who are very like noir experts, they said that he plays the best Philip Marlowe, because Humphrey Bogart aside, Philip Marlowe is supposed to be this tough guy, and Bogart was a tough guy, but he was not very tall, and he... It, the description in the novel does not correspond with what Bogart did with the character, but Powell does that. And yeah, it's it's funny, it's charming, it's very noir, and it's got a brilliant femme fatale uh, in Claire Trevor. And yeah, definitely recommend it. And the second film I saw was The Killers. And I um, I don't know much about Burt Lancaster, and I've not seen many Burt Lancaster films. And I've, I've wanted to see this because I had just finished reading um, Ava Gardner's biography and it's actually quite interesting and very revealing. And yeah, in 1946, I think it's directed by yeah, Robert Seidmack and it pairs Burt Lancaster with Ava Gardner and they're both really, really gorgeous looking people and the chemistry is very good. And the story is a bit fluffy but it's interesting because it's a story of, I'm not giving too much away if I say that he, it starts with Buck Lancaster's character getting killed and the story is told in flashbacks. It's a bit like the Citizen Kane of, oh, right, so it's a bit like, it starts with him being dead. So like Sunset Boulevard where he's in the, in the swimming Yeah, but because then, but the Sunset like Boulevard, a... he tells the story. Oh, right, but right. In, in, in The Killers, it doesn't. he doesn't tell the story. Somebody else tells the story about him. So like Susan Cain. Yeah. Okay, right. That's why I'm like, it's, it's just like the noir. So it's told in flashback by various people that, because there's a person who's doing the investigation as to who killed him and why. Right. So he does it sort of traces 
back to his youth and what he's done and Kitty uh, played by um, Ava Garner and she's the ultimate femme fatale um, so yeah that's the two films I've seen this week I was happy that I had time to watch that with, with the Philip Marlowe thing I mean I haven't read Big Sleep I haven't read Big Sleep but I've seen the movie um, is so is it a case of like they got in a character I don't know if, how much you know about you know the behind the scenes or is it because they just got Bogart they wanted Bogart to play Philip Marlowe or is it just the case of like Bogart wanted to play Marlowe or I think it was one of those cases where Warner Brothers just bought the rights to the book and they just had to cast it was uh, I think Bogart was riding high on the back of to have and to have not and he was a big he was big in the in the press because he just got divorced and married Lauren Bacall so they paired them two and there was big it was a big brouhaha and it was like high profile um and you know that sold tickets is the is is his depiction like so against Philip Marlowe like is is the description of Philip Marlowe so against Harry Potter I mean the, the, no, the, the, the I don't cause... know I just because I had a chat with my friend Matthew and he was like well if you read the book um, it it will tell you that Philip Marlowe is a big bloke and he's and whatnot. I think physically it's against type, but I think what Bogart did because he's such a good actor, he just made it his own. And I don't know if I agree with Dick Powell being the best Marlowe. He did a very good Marlowe in his own way, um, but I think Bogart just took it. Yeah, it's just it's just kind of interesting because like. I mean, Tor, you mentioned about, like, he's not, Bogart isn't, like, physically like what Marlowe is. Yeah. It reminded me of um, Jack Reacher, um, the Tom Cruise movie, which is obviously, which was originally done by, is it Grisham? Is it Lee Child? I can't remember who did Jack Reacher books. It's one of those crime yeah. writer books. Hang on. If only there was some kind of search engine we could look things up on. Um, Lee Child, yeah. So Lee Child wrote the Jack Reacher books, and um, Jack Reacher in the books is about six foot five, blonde, brick shit house, and in the movies he's played by Tom Cruise, um, <laughs> who wasn't six foot five, blonde, that built like a brick shit house. Um, and there was a lot of a lot of people fans of the books are kind of like, what are you doing? Like, why are you casting casting Tom Cruise as this? Um, but it's I think it's because. Tom Cruise wanted to play Jack Reacher. Um, I think, yeah, I, I don't know much about the production um, details around The Big Sleep. So, yeah, I, I can't tell you. I think it was just one of those things where they had to have the ba- the biggest leading man because yeah. it was a big production. Um, they had the rights and I think maybe Raymond Chandler was working on it. I can't, I can't really remember. Um, but it was directed by Howard Hawks, and I think Howard Hawks picked picked because Howard Hawks was the well, he didn't really want Bogart to marry Bacall because he thought that Bacall was his product. He found her and he molded her into the actress that she later became. Yeah, and I think what Howard Hawks uh, thought that Bogart in being involved with Bacall would just ruin that for for. Bacall's career so he was not very happy with the, their relationship but I think it was just he just finally went along with it because he saw that he had really good box office potential 
because the people were interested in the affairs, because uh, Bacall and Bogart got involved on the set of the Have and Have Not, and Bogart was already married to Mayo Method, but they were like the battling Bogarts because they would okay. fight and, and hurt each other and yeah, kept getting back together, but then he fell in love with Bacall and he was like, I'm just going to leave my wife. There was a lot of press about the a lot of media attention to that and I think yeah that's kind of where it was mm-hmm. um I remember in in to have and have not there's a scene where I think you probably heard and seen it you know how to whistle don't you Steve you just put t- your lips together and blow yeah um and this that sexual tension scene they wanted to recreate that with the big sleep and that's why they filmed have you seen the big sleep Yes, I have. Do you remember there's a scene where they meet up for a drink and they talk about horses? Possibly. And it's quite explicit. It's not explicit in the sense of the production code, but it's very like... They're not talking about horses. They're not talking about horses. (laughs) It's one of those like, okay, I see. (laughs) They're basically talking about how to make love and how, how, how they like it. Yeah. It's just really like if you look at it, like what they passed, they went, they the censors just let that ride. Like yeah, that's fine, fair <laughs> enough. It's very subtle, but it's just very well done. And I think yeah, they kind of wanted to capture the magic from To Have and Have Not into the Big Sleep. It's it's a mess of a film. The Big Sleep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it. It it's, it's, it took so much from the from the uh, it took away for so much from the novel because the novel it could, could in during the production code was very very hard to film it because. The younger sister was an infomaniac, and how how you you couldn't do that, you couldn't actually mm. show that, and there was a lot of things that. The first the first time I watched The Big Sleep um, was after the first time I watched The Big Lebowski, because I watched The Big Lebowski, and then I think I read somewhere that they were doing they were talking about Coen Brothers talked about The Big Sleep, and I was like, oh I'm gonna watch The Big Sleep because I didn't understand The Big Lebowski first time I watched it, <laughs> um, as you do like it it is. You don't really catch on to what Lebowski is doing until like perhaps the third or fourth viewing. <laughs> like you don't really kind of catch what the Coen Brothers are trying to do. And I think the Big Sleep it was like okay, let's go from one confusing movie to another confusing movie. <laughs> and um, I think the Big Sleep I have I have seen it twice, and I think second viewing I was kind of catching on as to what was going on. If you read the um, book and then watch the movie like straight after, you kind of piece it all together. Like oh, that was supposed to be that, and then that was supposed to be that. Um, but it is it is confusing, and I think I'm trying to find figure out who did the um, script for that because it was not Raymond Chandler, um, but it was someone called the, the scriptwriter called is it William Faulkner? Faulkner. Yes. W- w- really? Oh my God! Yes, it was William Faulkner. Oh. And he called uh, Raymond Chandler. Is it Raymond? Yeah. Um, in the middle of the night and asked him who was the murderer and he couldn't he's like oh if you don't it's in the novel if you don't know then I don't know and I'm like you wrote the book you should know <laughs> yeah okay. alright okay oh wow cool should we uh... I mean yeah, I think that's a good transition because like a big sleep is very confusing and I've got some thoughts on the first film that we're that, going to watch that we're, we're, we're going to talk about um, cool, so what is the first film we're doing? So the first film we're doing is one of my favourite noir films, um, 19, 
47's Out of the Past, directed by Jacques Tourneur. And here's a quick synopsis. A private eye escapes his past to run a gas station in a small town, but his past catches up with him. Now he must return to the big city, world of danger, corruption, double crosses and duplicitous games. What did you think of Out of the Past, Nick? This is our uh, second Jacques Tourneur movie. Um, we've done... Mm-hmm. We've done, I'm glad you know we've done we've done two quite in quick succession um relatively quick succession um yeah i at the start i knew the plot i knew what the the, the synopsis i knew the synopsis um because it's one of those movies you know pops up lists and all this kind of stuff and i was like okay right well it just sounds like it's going to be a history of violence the David David Cronenberg movie, mm. and it's not that. And um, it took it. It. I really had to kind of concentrate as to what was going on in terms of who was kind of responsible for what. Um, it, yeah, it. It's the the dialogue is very noir like when you watch like cartoons or sitcoms doing you know spoofs on noir or this is the dialogue that they're using this is the the language that they're using the, the inflections the the uh, slang you know it's it, it's straight out of this movie so it was really quite cool seeing that um and like i said i kind of had to really kind of concentrate because of that the, the language it's like it's like the aforementioned Big Sleep, um, and a movie we had uh, back in the first season, um, Brick, where you really had to kind of concentrate as to what they were saying, because the slang and the language is is unusual, and um, it's, it's it's just a different it has a different rhythm to it to what how usual usual films have. Um, uh, the plot itself is. Once you kind of peel back that, it's actually pretty simple. He's just getting framed for something he didn't do, and he's trying to clear his name. Clear his name, but it's everything around that. It's you know, just quite yeah. Is is is, is 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 quite a lot around it. Um, you had you had the whole idea that you know the past was coming back to haunt him. And then it goes into a flashback where you see the past bit and then you kind of go, okay, well, that's the past and then here's the following on thing. I kind of... I kind of almost... I don't know, like, the, 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 that little framing device, it's like, it takes up half the movie with the, you know, the, that flashback in the car when he's talking in the car. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like maybe... I don't know, maybe it could have been a bit long I don't know it was just kind of like well there's clearly something going on with this guy and then he goes into a flashback sequence and it's very tropey it's like it's like when you're writing a screenplay you you don't do that <laughs> you don't do the whole oh this is what happened and uh, you know this explains why I'm doing what I'm doing and it's a whole flashback it's it's but I think because this is doing it so early on in the forties, I think yeah. But not only films have I kind think... of ripped this off. I think the 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 narrative and the framing device is very. It's been done before, 
No, I'm, I have to disagree there because I think the, the flashback doesn't come to... It's not like abrupt. Is that what you're trying to say? No, no, I just... I, I just... I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to. I, I don't really know how I'm how I'm trying to say it. Like, it just it it just feels as though that that's it, that that whole kind of sequence of the beginning is a really really good introduction to the character of of Bailey or Jeff, and it it kind of goes into the 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 you know like just the the Sunset Boulevard kind of wistful flashback, well, wistful, wistful, but the flashback, the fade flashback, this is what happened three days ago kind of thing. Um, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just, it, it was just kind of, it just it just took me a minute to try and track what was going on and why it was doing what it was doing. If you, um, I think it starts off with, what I first got from it was that you waited. I, I, for me, it was like I'm waiting to to hear more about why what's happening, because you see the interaction from the beginning where the guy starts asking questions and he, there's a look when he goes to the gas station and you see the sort of recognition there, and you kind of know like what that guy's about. He recognized Jeff, and then stuff's going to happen, but it's all very quiet, and you kind of wait for Jeff to sort of start. T- telling the story and that's kind of what it felt for me it felt quite natural for him to start mm. telling the story then I didn't say it didn't feel natural it was just I don't know it just I think it's because I've seen you know I was talking about the the, the, the tropes of noir before when we spoke about um, you know the gangster tropes in White Heat and stuff and then we you know we spoke a little about and Dick Tracy I think in here it's like the noir dialogue and the framing device it's been done so many times since this movie has come out. It's like the tropes are there. I think this is like the origin of the, I mean, not necessarily the origin of the tropes, but like, I think it's, it's, I'm finding it a bit difficult because. Was it boring? No, 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 no. I'm not saying it's boring. It's just. It seems like you're saying it was boring. I'm not saying it's boring. I'm not saying it's boring. I'm just. It's okay. Fine. No, no, I, 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 really, I did really enjoy the film. I mean, I got it. I, you know, I did my star rating. It's got four and a half stars because I, really, I re- yes, I know. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the second half of the movie my a job. lot more than I did the first half of the movie. Okay. That whole stuff in Mexico and, um, yeah, I know, think like, yeah, maybe it was exposition heavy. You know, she she walks in, you know, with legs all the way up to the bottom of her torso, kind of thing. Like, what do you think of Jane Greer? She was beautiful. <laughs> No, no, she was not. No, no. Isn't that the obvious thing about her? She's just dropped dead gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. She, she was. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the thing that you know, Kirk Douglas, the wits. I think his character is Mm -hmm. like you know where he says, "I don't want her back, but you'll know when you see when you see her." And you're like, okay, well, you know, I don't believe you. And then you see her, and you're like, oh, right, yeah, I get it. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I did, I enjoyed the second half of the film a lot more than I did the first half of the, the initial flashback, um, when it started kind of actually going into what was happening in immediacy, mm. I think that was more, you know, as you, you were seeing things happen as they happened, not yeah. telling a story of what's just happened, which 
only works for me if it's done, you know, like in Sunset Boulevard, for example, where that's the whole movie, or in Citizen Kane, where you're, you know, you're seeing the reason behind yeah. what Rosebud means. I think you're you're not seeing it, from, like in Citizen Kane, you're seeing it from a grand thematic point of view, the reason why we're getting the flashback in Sunset Boulevard, you're getting the reason why he's in he's in a swimming pool it's like a very very dramatic thing seeing a guy dead in a swimming pool and then hearing him talk about why he's there whereas in this it's like oh he's in a car and he's like well this is what happened to me six weeks ago and it's like um you know it's like okay I, i think from my perspective i think it's just it's 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 a it's a trope that i've seen done before in other things like in sitcoms or in cartoons or in like other movies that try and you know okay. rip rip this off and I think like I said the second half of the movie I enjoyed a lot more work more better um especially when things started kind of that whole wrap up sequence where everything's kind of wrapping up was quite cool to watch um so yeah altogether I um, yeah really really enjoyed like I said the movie um, you can definitely see that it's done by the same guy that cat, did Cat People. Mm. Um, it's a different cinematographer though, isn't it? I think so. Um, no? Not sure. No, it's not. No, no it I think it's the same one. It is the same film. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe that's why I can tell that it's done, it's the it same. It was, yeah, I, I think the cinematography was done very, very well. Yes. Um, especially the way, uh, Jane Greer was shot in particular. Yeah. Um, it holds those shots quite well, like quite long as well. Um, yeah. So, um, speaking of Jane Grey, how would you rate her in terms of femme fatale? I mean, From, what, what, are we, what are we talking? Where's, where's, where's the tier? I, what are we talking? Well, you know, you've got Phyllis Dietrichson. Right. At the top. And I don't know, trying to think. Uh, and you've got Madonna at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> where's where's um where's uh, Jessica Rabbit in this? Well, she's quite high Jessica up. Jessica Rabbit's think. quite yeah. high. What do you think? I mean, she's not she's not quite you know she's not quite uh, Lauren Lauren Bacall, isn't it? Yeah. No. Yeah. She's not quite there. And you got yeah, I think you're right with with Phyllis. She is top top. She is. I mean. I mean, I haven't. I mean, there's a lot of. Ones I haven't seen. Um, I mean, you know, Mary Astor's got is up there. As she top is. Three, she has to be top three, top four. I think. Um, I I do. I think I I did tweet about Mary Astor being British British O'Shaughnessy being right top there. I do think Jane Greer is quite good in this, and she's so chillingly evil. Don't yes. you find? Yeah, she was a bit like, where's this coming from? Exactly, she's a psychopath. She takes that gun and she's like, yeah, I'm going to kill this motherfucker. Yeah, it's like, where where is this coming from? Honestly, where is it coming from? I think, you know, the film Fatale has obviously changed over the years. Like, it's not, I mean, I'm trying to think, like, who else would be, like, you know, in that pantheon but it's a bit more modern, a bit more kind of films that I've seen, seen. Have you seen Lever to Heaven? No. Oh. Okay. Oh. Who's that? Um, that's Jean Tierney. 
As evil goes, I, I don't know if that can be ever topped. She's I mean, you've just got... simply psychopathic. But she's actually, if I can say, it, she's as beautiful as Jane Greer, if not more so. Mm. She's got the same look. And she's absolutely psychopathic to, to the nth degree. A bit like, yeah, it's, it's hard, kind of hard to sort of top that. I think, like, I think David Lynch has very good femme fatales in his movies. Um, yeah. Isabella Rossellini, Blue Velvet, obviously we just lost um, the the great uh, Dean Stockwell. Um, yeah. And, you know, you've got Patricia Arquette in Lost Highway, and then you got Audrey Horn in, in, in Twin Peaks. Um, you know, maybe yeah. just lump them in as like yeah. David Lynch femme fatales as just one entity and... In, but yeah, I, but I, the fan fatals and David Lynch's films are very. They've got human baggage and they're very complicated and they're very modern. I think that's just because I think that's just because of the era that's being made. Yeah, I think. And these these women are just ridiculously <laughs> stylized. Should I say? A bit bas- I don't say basic. I mean basic in the in the in the in the no. in the bad way. I just mean there is a, a simplicity to them. The... I don't think there's a simplicity. I think they're very complex as well, but in a, in a different way, in a more dangerous way because you don't see it. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I was getting at. The simplicity is like the the the, the dangerous... She's just a beautiful woman, but she's she just wants to kill. Um, yeah, no, I, I it'd be interesting. I'm I'm looking forward to watching more femme fatale like in these noir movies. I think we've got. Have we got any more this November? Um, um, we got Postman Always Rings twice. Oh yes, Lana Turner! I can't wait for you to see that. Okay, and then the other one is uh, Strangers on a Train. Hmm. No, there's no fan fatale in that one. I don't think from my memory. Uh, but you have um, you have Patricia Hitchcock, who's actually very good. Uh, she's not fan fatale, but she's very good. In that. Okay. Cool. I think yeah. I think out of the past, it's it's very obvious as to why it's there yeah. in this pantheon of noir movies. I think it's very much it's it's the almost it is pretty much almost the Rosetta Stone. I think. Yeah. Um. Um. I have a quote here from um, Mick Lasalle, who was uh, quite a good film historian he um, reviewed this film in 1997 and he said the picture contains everything one might want in an all time studio film plus good taste, complicated emotions and an adult moral sense the black and white cinematography is stunning even apart from its psychological pertinence Robert Mitchum and Kirk Douglas stars who went went on to become icons were rarely as vivid as they are here Yet, this is directed at Jacques Tourneur's show all the way. And he gives that um, opening sequence as an example. He doesn't sustain a mood so much as build it. His opening is audaciously unassuming. There's a small town with a diner across the street from a gas station. An affable stranger is asking questions about Jeff, who owns the station. If we know anything about movies, we know this probably means trouble. But everything is calm, low-key. And I like that, it's just, end quote, I like that, it's just so slightly unassuming, if you didn't know noir, you would miss it, 
but it's just very like intense but insidious you know you've got that guy who's like looking and oh yeah I know this guy and yeah it's just so so good and I we've had Robert Mitchum before on on the podcast so that was the thing right so the reason the re the reason why I went towards history of violence was because of Robert Mitchum's performance in The Night of the Hunter, where he plays... I think I even said he's the most evil character in the history of evil characters. Um, like, I, I, I think I, I, did, I did that tweet of pointing out that Judge Doom in Roger Rabbit is the, most evil, is the most evil villain we've ever had on the podcast, but I think he's an evil cartoony villain, whereas his character in Night of the Hunter is just plain an evil person, like, and which is even more scary. I mean, what's more scary than a, per, a, a real person rather than somebody who's a, who's a, who's a cartoon. Um, and I think that's why I went towards History of Islands because I was like, okay, well, you know, it's going to go towards like him because like, you can't have a face like Robert Mitchum and, you know, and have him be, a nice guy. He's, there's got to be something really damaged underneath. Well, there is. I mean, there is. There is in this, but it was. It was like I was kind of. I don't know. I was kind of hoping for a 1940s version of History of Violence. <laughs> um, I really like that movie, but um, yeah, his performance was was really really good. It was really interesting seeing a different, uh, different layer to him. Um, I have um, so. Robert Mitchum had a uh, chat with Roger Ebert um, at the Virginia Film Festival, and I found some an excerpt of of the interview. Um, Roger Ebert talks a bit about the meet uh, the meeting between Mitchum and Douglas, um, and how it opens on a note of humor so quiet it may pass unnoticed. Quote: "Cigarette," offers Douglas. "Smoking," says Mitchum, holding up his hand with a cigarette in it. Something about that moment has always struck me as odd, as somehow outside the movie. And I asked Mitchum about it after, at a screening of Out of the Past at the Virginia Film Festival. Did you guys have an idea of doing a running gag involving a cigarette smoking, I asked him. No, no, because there's more cigarette smoking in this movie than any other movie I've ever seen. We never thought about it, we just smoked, and I'm not impressed by that because I don't, honest to God, know that I've ever actually seen the film. You've never seen it. I'm sure I have, but it's been so long that I don't know. That was Mitchum for you, a superb actor who affected a weary indifference to his work. End quote. It did almost come across like an advert for, for tobacco or whatever. Yeah, thing. and I have a really, uh, um, another funny quote from Roger Ebers' um, review. Quote, there is a lot of smoking in Out of the Past. There is a lot of smoking in all noirs, even in the modern ones, because it goes with the territory. Good health for noir characters starts with not getting killed. But few movies use smoking as well as this one. In this, their scenes together, it would, be fair to say, it would be fair to say that Mitchum and Douglas smoke at each other in a sublimated form of fencing. End quote. And I think that kind of captures the relationship between the two because every time they see each other, they kind of measure each other up. Mm. And my, I think my favourite scene in the whole film is where you have a Douglas's character show up at the door when he's just about to leave town with Jane Greer, with mm. Kathy, And the tension in, in, those, in that sequence where he 
takes the earrings off the table, which is the, the only indication that Kathy's been sleeping with him, and just puts them in his pocket. And he kind of looks around and sees, sees her, and he kind of he has to sort of weasel his way out of the situation and make sure that no one sniffs anything out. I was on the edge of my seat during that scene because it's just so intense. You see, like, one one second, a glance in the wrong direction, and he Douglas will see Kathy and, and like, all hell will break loose. But it doesn't, obviously. It is just, like... Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of... Well, one other, in terms of... I think I had a... Um, another anecdote in terms of how Mitchum prepared for the role. Jane Greer recalled that the laconic Robert Mitchum projected an equally cavalier attitude off camera. And she got the impression that he came on the set unprepared in order to give a more spontaneous performance. She quotes, I remember him saying, what are the lyrics to the script person? I never know the lyrics, he'd say, and he would give him the lines. I said, don't you learn your lines beforehand? And he said, nah. Gosh, I learned mine a week ahead of time. I thought that might be a part of why he seemed so much more spontaneous, why he was so easy and underplayed. I decided I'd do that, not be letter perfect. So I tried learning my lines under the dryer in the morning. I hoped I looked as though I was thinking. But I blew take after take, and he was letter perfect. Well, I figured out later that, of course, he knew the lines. End quote. He was a bit of a, yeah, sneaky. Um, but yeah, uh, speaking of... Uh, Bogart, he refused the lead uh, to this movie and then it was offered to John Garfield and then Dick Powell and then Robin Mitchum was the fourth choice of this film and I could not see anybody play him, mm. play Jeff the way he did. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very difficult role I think. Yeah. Very, very difficult role to yeah. kind of pull off. Because I think you've got, he's got to kind of convey that sense of almost being lost but has control of the situation and and always being five steps ahead of yeah. of, of everybody else yeah yeah cuz like like you said in the second part he's very like calculated and he knows what he's doing all the time uh, yeah i think you know the 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 first that first flashback sequence i think i think that's his performance i wouldn't say i think it's more maybe was kind of bugging me a little bit is because there wasn't an immediacy to his character at that point. It was almost just this... He was almost kind of just phasing with the actions of what was going on around him. It was like a... Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of like just washing over him, as it were, whereas like in the second half it was... Yeah. Bang, 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 bang. I think it was undecided in the first half that he, he, he still wanted to be with Anne mm. and make sure that she doesn't get hurt and make sure that he, he still has something at, the stakes were high for him there but then I think what happened after the first half he realises that there's no way he can get out of there alive and he just that's why he just like I don't care anymore I'm going to do what's right even if it kills me and he knew that he didn't deserve to be with Anne in the end which is a bit sad, because she really loved him. But that's what film noirs are. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm glad you gave it such a high rating. 
We should have more um, Robert Mitchum films on, on the podcast. I, I really like him. Yeah. As an actor. I think it'd be interesting. Just I'm just seeing more of him, I think, uh, different layers to him. Yeah. Um, and he's uh, just looking up his filmography. It's a really good segue. Um, he's in a uh, he's in a movie called Dead Man, um, which is from nineteen ninety five, starring Johnny Depp, um, but also directed by Jim Jarmusch. Oh. Um, who is the director of our second movie? Um, I see. I'm really good at segues. That's a great segue. Very good. Like you can buy that segue online. Um, <laughs> You have to bid for it, I'm sure. <laughs> Do they even make segues anymore? <laughs> um, so our second movie uh, is is not about segues. Um, is uh, Ghost Dog: The Way of the Samurai from uh, 1999, directed by Jim Jarmusch, um, starring uh, Forrest Whitaker, um, among many others. I think we're just going to go into the synopsis because this is the movie that we've literally just finished watching. Um, yeah, uh, it's the, 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 the first movie that me and Danny have sat and watched together um, in person. So it'd be really interesting to kind of put your notes to how it was watching. So the synopsis is um, an African-American mafia hitman who models himself after the samurai of old finds themselves targeted to death by the mob. Um, so Danny, what did you think of Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai? Hmm. So... I'm just reading through my notes. It's just, yeah, they're very, very muddled. So I thought the music was rather interesting. And I liked it. I felt like there was a lot of symbolism in the film that I probably missed on first viewing. So you have, you have the samurai, the way of the samurai. You have the gangster. You have the black gangster. Yeah, 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 culture. You have the Italian gangster culture. Yeah, the, maf- the, the Italian mafia. mafia. Yeah. They're still gangsters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in a different... Yeah. You have this... And then you have the cartoons, which are always shown as foreshadowing what is about to happen next, which I thought that was very cleverly done. Um, at the beginning, I thought it was a bit slow-paced because there's a lot of walking and putting stuff... putting CDs in, in, in the radio and... In the, in the car radio um, player and just walking and listening to music and driving and that kind of thing. Um, but it's it's Jim Drummer's style to a T, isn't it? The way he paces things. I really liked the color filters and the color palette of most of the scenes. It was, yeah, it was like a painting sometimes where you had like the composition where the the mafia are just sitting at a table and you see that it's quite not symmetrical but it was quite like a painting so you have so many cultural mixes in this film that i was a bit confused as to what what was going to happen and um i forgot to do something but it will will, there's a i think there's a quote i have to check there is a quote from somebody who made a very interesting remark about the film. We must interrogate the link between beauty and violence. And I think that was Anish Kapoor. And I just felt like it was that, because you have so much beauty, you have the beauty of, of 
of the landscape, of the urban landscape, but there's so much violence around it. Mm. And I thought that was quite interesting. Um, what I felt didn't quite gel at one point or another was that it felt quite a bit of a caricature of everything. So you see, the Forest Whitaker ghost dog, he takes everything very seriously and he's got this discipline which is admirable, which is the, the way of the samurai. But I thought I felt that was slightly tainted by the fact that the opponent is is a caricature. Like the Italians weren't very serious; they were not seen in a serious way. So I felt there was it was a bit of an imbalance in in that respect because you have this guy who's got this creed, and the rest those guys are like what they're cartoons. Yeah. I mean, it was funny, it was jokey, but it was just like, I don't, I don't know how I should feel about this. Should I take it seriously or should I not take it seriously? Because you see Forrest Whit Whitaker's face and he's just, there's so much pain on that face and so much concentration. And he's done a really, really wonderful job. I thought he did very, very well. And he's got, he's a man who's got, he, he, he hasn't got much to lose, but he's got this discipline that he adheres to. And it just felt like the rest of the of the lot, the, the, the Italian mafia were just like bumbling idiots. And yeah, it just felt a bit, it was not, not gelling for me, it just didn't, yeah. Um, I liked the, the French man, he was basically saying everything for, uh, for us what a ghost dog was saying. Cinematography was great. I like the the scene where he's on the roof and he's he's playing with all the all the swords and the machete and the gun and doing all that. And I think that's the only time in the film that you see him smile. Maybe I'm wrong, but that was the time I noticed him yeah. with a huge, like his whole face lit up. Um, I like I like it was just yeah noir gangster samurai philosophy a lot a bit of everything, but it was just. Maybe more, it didn't, it, I don't, I, the samurai stuff was taken seriously, but the rest was not, and I just, uh, I, yeah, it was. It was like the mixture of tones. It was a mixture of like tones that I'm not sure they work well together, but it's Jim Dramish, and you, you know, you expect everything. <laughs> um, and I liked the uh, reference, well, I didn't, I liked it, or I recognised it, but I didn't like it, the reference to, to the, wat on, on the waterfront. And we will have on the waterfront on season three, I think. Maybe, possibly. On the podcast. I'm pretty sure we have it paired with the sorcerer. Yes, we do. Sorcerer, yes, we do. On the, really, do we? Yep. We're talking about uh, working class and, and working and, and... Yeah, yeah, we are, aren't we? Work on the waterfront, yeah. So, I was a bit confused as to, as to whether everything was done as a joke or just the yeah the Italian mafia. It was, it was an interesting viewing, and I liked the last foreshadowing was done brilliantly. I thought, because you have the guy watching telly, watching the cartoon, and it actually exactly. Two seconds later, that's exactly what happens. And I think that was the yeah, best ending ever. I think I would have ended it there. 
but I know that he had to do what he had to do with his master. Yeah. Retainer. Retainer. Yeah. Um, maybe three out of five. Okay. Okay. Um, mostly because of Forrest Whitaker. I thought he was brilliant. Well, um, and the cinematography was great. The colour was, was good. Yeah. Maybe 3.5 out of 5. A big part of the movie is the music. Yeah. Um, so I, d- I don't know if... I mean, I don't know if you like... I don't much. No, sorry. But some of it, some of it was interesting because it had no lyrics and the lyrics distract me. So if I, if I listen to rap, I get distracted. Um, but this was just... Most of the time it was just beats. And that's okay. Instrumental stuff was 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 okay. Yeah, so the, the, like you said, the big part of the, music, the big part of the film is the music, and the music is done um, by RZA, um, who was in the Wu Tang Clan. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody knows the Wu Tang Clan, um, but he he did the I would say comp he did the composition for you know some of the the the, 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 the stuff at the beginning that that central beat that you kind of hear through the movie that that's that's him. And then, like, he kind of chose the songs that were going to be a part of, you know, certain certain parts of the film, like when he's got the CDs and he's put them in the thing. So, yeah. um, you know, the, the third the third time he steals the car, where he steals that um, convertible drag and, and your reaction to the music was one of what on that earth... That was not very good. I didn't think um, that was good. I'm not a musician, but it just felt like out of tune. It yeah. was not like the instrument was not tuned in properly. I think it's because it's reflecting the loss of control because a lot of the music that's come before that is very structured. Yeah. Um, the, the, the way um, the rhyming goes in in like these hip hop rap songs is, is very, very structured and very, very deliberate. Whereas that is the first time we hear something that is extremely free flowing. It is jarring. literally free flow jazz, and it's that jarring. Is not jazz. No, but it's what it's defined as. On, 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 on I literally okay. googled it, and That's it says fine. it says jazz. Um, uh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, th- it's the first time that I think he's he's lost that control. I, thus, that's the point where the control has been lost. And that's why we hear that music at that point, and it spells his downfall mm-hmm. at the end. I don't know because I've always thought that he his end was going to be what happened. Yeah. We knew that was that was we knew that from the very beginning that he if his master was going to tell him that he needed to die, he would die because his retainer, his master, would yeah, tell him. Yeah, to. yeah, yeah. I. So I don't know. I don't know how 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 you um find the loss of control and where that happens because I don't think he had lost any control at any point. He was very calculated in his head. He knew exactly what he was doing. Mm. I don't think... I don't. I, that's not how I read the movie. Okay, okay. I'm, I read it differently. <laughs> I th- because he had all the discipline. He had it all the time. Yeah. Because if he wanted, he would have been able to escape his fate. But that he knew that that was what he embraced. That was the discipline. Maybe I'm just putting too much. I I just I just think there is a reason why that's there because 
it is so different to every other piece of music in the film and there is a reason why it's there. I mean, it's Jim Jarmusch, there is a reason why he's doing it. Okay. Um, and that's what I interpreted it as. Maybe I've got to try and do a bit of reading and find, find out. That would be, yeah, I mean, that would be interesting to see what the thinking behind the composing of that piece would, would be. Um, the, the the film does a lot of merging of cultures, like you said, it's merging of different genres, different film genres. We got the the Wild West, you even said yeah, Wild West yeah. ending at the, the end, at the, yeah, and the, final the, the sound of the bell of the. I don't know if you heard that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you know you've got the traditional samurai, you know, movie going on as well, and then you've got the Italian mafia movie as well, and you've got the the kind of philosophical kind of introspection going on yeah um yeah it's like and the, like I said the, the, the movie is like this mishmash of cultures and mishmash of kind of everything going on at once and it, I think it works really well and the, the recurring thing is things are changing the film came out in 1999 and you think about the year later, we got the new millennium. And I think that's very much in the DNA of this movie is that that is, it's there as like the ancient ways are changing. We are moving into a new century. We are moving into the future. I think that's kind of into this. In for me, that's how I was reading the movie. And I think the ancient ways are the lost are, ways. Are the lost ways. But then you have the little girl you have, yeah. reading it. Yes, you have, because the ancient ways pass on. Even though there's this, this the, the fear of the ancient ways being lost, and I think that's what ultimately causes the self-destruction, I think, of the Mafia, is that they fear so much that they're losing control, that they lose everything at the end. And I think, Is that why they've been so caricaturized? Well, you notice that they're all old. Yeah. Like, yeah. they're all, like, over 50, easily yeah. over 50. Um, like, you know, it, and the fact that they can't pay rent on the place that they're hiding out at as well, I think. Yeah. It's very much like, this doesn't exist anymore. Why, yeah. why are these people sticking to a way that doesn't exist? This isn't the 70s. This isn't... Yeah, maybe that's 50s why we laugh era. at them. And we, yeah, I think yeah, it's you know, such a jokey thing. So I mean, it's this is these aren't the mafia people that we that we recognise from the Godfather and Goodfellas. You know, yeah. these are they're they're outdated. They shouldn't exist in nineteen ninety nine, but they are. Um, yeah, and I, that's why they they ultimately go go at the end of the movie. Obviously, Louis is still alive and the daughter's still alive. I, you know the implication is there is that you know there's that line where um uh, Vinny Vinny shoots the cop and you know he's, yeah. he's like you shot a woman and yes, you know, his reaction is like well you know chauvinistic. chauvinistic because you know they want equality this is equality I've shot a cop and I think <laughs> at the end we are getting that with the fact that the daughter because Louie, you know, you notice when Louis gets in the car and it's like drive, 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 and the driver doesn't move and until she tells until she drive. tells him and puts the sign and she does the yeah, and it's like she's, she's in the control. Boss now. She's now in control. She's the boss and she's also a woman. She is aware of Rashomon, for example, because you know Louis looked at the book and was like, "What the hell is this?" this? Yeah, where she knew what it was. She's moved on and she's taken the ancient ways along with her, but she's also 
a woman in charge, you know, going into the new millennium, going into the future. That's the kind of the way I'm yeah. reading it. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I don't really have any other background stuff, apart from the fact that, like you said, Jim Jarmusch and, and uh, Rizzo kind of work together on the movie in terms of the soundtrack. Um, that they would send each, like, Jarmusch would send dailies on VHS, because this was the 90s. Um, yeah. And uh, in, oh, in, return, times. in return, Rizzo would send back the, you know, tracks and stuff because um, at the start of the movie you've asked like where it was set and I think I said Baltimore but it doesn't it, it's not really set anywhere no it could be um, anywhere it's, yeah. it was actually filmed in, in Jersey City in New Jersey um, and uh, the Rizzo actually makes a appearance in the movie he is yes. the uh, samurai in camouflage that approaches Ghost Dog at the end yeah that was that was nice thing um, which is really cool um, so the film was nominated for quite a few awards. Um, it was nominated for the Palme d'Or at the 99 Canfield Festival, but obviously didn't win. Um, uh, made yeah, it did all right. I mean, and critically, um, Roger Ebert, you know, uh, proposed that uh, Ghost Dog made the most sense. Whitaker's character was insane. <laughs> really? In a quiet, sweet way, he is totally unhinged and has lost all touch with reality. His profound sadness which permeates the touching Whitaker performance, comes from his alienation from human society, his loneliness, his attempt to justify inhuman behaviour with a belief system that's no connection with this life or his world. Um, yeah, I think that encapsulates it. Because so, he yeah. is very, very like isolated, and he, I think that's why he embraces the, the way of the samurai, because there's, I mean, talk about extinct cultures. Yeah. The samurai are dead, there's no more of them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, same with as, as with the mafia. Yeah. Are you, I mean, you're not, um, you've only ever seen Only Lovers Left Alive, the other Jarmish movie. You've yeah. Um, I've only, I've seen this um, and then uh, Lovers Left Alive, uh, The Dead Don't Die, which came out. Oh, years I've ago. seen The Dead Don't Die too. I didn't really like it. Yeah, it's a bit hit and miss. I kind of, I don't I mean, it, it was fine, um, mostly because of all the performances. Yeah. And you've got Tilda Swinton. And then, um, um, yeah, the, I've seen the dead on die. The movie I kind of fell in love with was he did recently called Patterson, which I'm is about, still yet to see that because uh, I love Adam Driver. Yeah, Adam Driver is a bus driver, um, which it's such a nice movie because there's literally no stakes in that movie, um, and it's a really great way to spend I think ninety minutes. I think Patterson's really really short, and it's a really nice movie. Um, I need to see his other movies. Dead Man is. Uh, Stranger in Paradise, mm. um, apparently really, really good. I need to get get through his work because it's what I've seen of it. I'm really, I really, really enjoy. Um, so yeah. So I think we're done with both. Yeah, thank you. That was that was a good choice. I think. I think it kind of worked. Um, yeah, past. Past, yeah, past. Um, I think next week, I don't even know if it's going to work again like, you know the pairings for November this year I, th I think are a bit kind of could be a bit hit or miss so, so far we got lucky I think with the last two um, but yeah what have we got next week? Um, so next week we're doing uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice mm. um, which I don't actually know the, the director who directed that oh 
don't know. <laughs> I should know. Uh, I just gotta look it up. That's fine. I should have it ready, but I don't. Uh, it's 19, uh, 1946, um, directed by Tay Garnett, starring Lana Turner and John Garfield. Um, and we're watching that with our second Michael Mann movie, um, Thief, um, which is this... We've only done one Michael Mann movie. We've only done Miami Vice. We did Miami Vice. And that too. Is and that that's it? it? We we literally we've only done mine worse because you've seen Collateral. I've seen. I think I think it's because we've both seen most of Michael Mann's yeah. films. Um. Yeah. I mean, like. I mean, yeah. You've seen Collateral. You've seen Heat. Yeah. Um. Uh, My Last Mohicans. Yeah. Uh, the Insider. Yeah. Manhunter. Yeah. Public Enemies. Yeah. And then Ali. Hmm. Will Smith is Muhammad no. Ali. Okay, so we've got Ali, and I know you haven't seen Black Hat. Which is the Chris Hemsworth hacker movie? No, I've not seen that. And then you got Thief, uh, which we're doing next week, and then The Keep, which is um, a science fiction horror movie, which got cut to shreds by uh, Paramount. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, so Thief um, from nineteen eighty one, I think. Yeah, nineteen eighty one, starring James Caan, um, oh. uh, Tuesday World, um, Willie Nelson um, is in it as well, and. Yes, I'm very, very much looking forward to this movie. Uh, the soundtrack's done by uh, Tangerine Dream. Why does that sound familiar? Um, they've done... Oh God, they've done lots of music for lots of different things. I mean, we've got Sorcerer for season three, and they did the soundtrack for, uh, for Sorcerer. Great. Um, but they're like an electronic band. They did the music for Risky Business as well. Okay. Um, another movie we're going in season three. They did the soundtrack for Near Dark, which we've got in season three as oh, well. Oh, we're quite excited about Near Dark. Um, so cool. yeah, that'll be that'll be next week. Uh, in the, in the meantime, um, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Kino Joan, and my website is keenojoan.co.uk. I need to write some more stuff in there because I've not written in a long time. <laughs> um, and you can find me on Twitter at Nickers Chandler. My website is uh, superatomicvision.com. Our uh, Gmail, podcast Gmail is keenotomic at gmail.com. Our uh, Twitter is at keenotomic. Uh, give us a follow on there. We'll kind of uh, post up our noir stuff on there. And Let um, us know what's your favourite femme fatale. Yes, right, yeah. Who is your favourite femme fatale? Like um, the deadliest. The, de- of the, the deadliest. The deadliest of the deadliest. Looks could kill and does kill. Hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, our Facebook, we've got that new Facebook page, which will be on the Kinatomic, uh, be on the podcast notes. Um, so yeah, with all that in mind, it's a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me.